Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today, we get a chance to talk with my friend. You're seeing him there on the screen, Paul Mirangoff of Ringside at the Reckoning, ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. One of the longest URLs you'll ever type in, but you'll enjoy it when you get there. Uh, Paul, <laughs> we got to get you like a, we got to get you like a t.co sort of uh, uh, link, I guess, or something, right? I know, I know. I thought I was being clever with that name, but I, it's way, it's way too long. But if once you, once you get in the habit and just start typing ring, then it'll automatically take you there if, if you go there enough. So yeah. I encourage that. Yeah, go there often. That way you don't have to worry about it. Ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. And uh, lots to discuss today. I mean, as we're talking, we're, do, we're, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. And um, we're just waiting for uh, Merrick Garland to get up and speak about the um, the Trump raid. And, you know, there's a lot of different things that are going on around this. And one of the first things that I said is, you know, we kind of really need to wait and, you know, hold our powder just a little bit. But this is a really unusual set of circumstances. And to go through all this for a document retention issue, even with the you know, issue of classified material, which I'm very sensitive to. I've, I've had security clearances before. Um, I, I just found this to be a really strange decision politically to, to, to do this in the manner that they did it. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, if, if, it, if it's just about those, those documents, then it is very strange. It seems like a case of overkill, although we don't know how much resistance there was from Trump, whether Trump's being honest when he talks about how cooperative he was. If it's a pretext to get at uh, January 6th type stuff, then well, that, that that's something that they shouldn't be doing, certainly shouldn't be doing uh, in an unprecedented manner to a former president of the United States and current leader of a party. So we, either way, it's very, very suspect. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you're mentioning that because, you know, I know that you read Andy McCarthy over at National Review, and I do as well. And I've interviewed him a number of times. Very smart guy. And he said right off the bat, this can't be about documents. This has got to be about January 6th or some collateral issue around January 6th because it just doesn't make sense that you go after documents when you know where they're at already. Now, earlier today, and again, we're waiting for Merrick Garland to clarify some of these things this afternoon, which may not happen while we're talking, by the way, but just to note while we're talking that, there's apparently going to be some clarifications today. Uh, we did learn earlier today that they did actually serve a subpoena first back in June. Um, and we're not really sure what the outcome of the subpoena serving was. Uh, apparently it wasn't sufficient because they came back uh, in August to, to raid the facility. But um, I think it does sort of point out that there's, there's probably more that we're going to learn about this and that it may end up that nobody comes out of this looking terribly good. Uh, either side of this dispute, uh, both sides may come out looking pretty bad over this thing. Yeah, I, I doubt that Trump has been, you know, cooperative or, or fully responsive. But still, uh, it seems like overkill. And I guess neither side may come out looking very good regarding the aftermath or the reactions that people have had because... I think on both sides, you know, the sheer glee with which Democrats greeted this precedent-breaking uh, attack, uh, having taken contrary positions with regard to Hillary Clinton, is not that uh, does not re rebound well, redound well on them, and some of the shrillness of of what Republican leaders have said, uh, without really knowing more, and uh, you know, we're calling you know talking about fascism and tyranny. Uh, seems like overkill as well, although you know the, the facts may end up bearing that out. But either side wanted to hold its fire, but nobody ever does anymore these days. Right. Yeah, I mean that's part of the issue, right? Is that everybody likes to jump to conclusions. You know, as we're talking, there's an there's an unfolding thing that happened at the apparently happened at the Cincinnati FBI office, where somebody showed up with a gun and tried to force their way in through the visitor holding area. Um, now. You have to be all sorts of stupid to do that in the first place. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I I don't even really care what your issue was. Whatever it is, it's stupid, and so are you. If you're if you're trying to pull something like that at an FBI office, um, but of course everybody was kind of leaping all over the idea that this was in response to the raid at Mar-a-Lago, and later developments appear at least to show that this actually may have been a guy who had warned out over the January sixth thing instead, 
and was angry over that. Um, And I think it speaks to what you just said about not jumping to conclusions ahead of all the facts coming in. Yeah, right. But, you know, I, I, I think that uh, if I were really cynical about this, I, w- I would jump to the conclusion that the motive behind all this was to rile up the, the Trump base so much yeah. that, that they would do stupid stuff. I, in, a, in a post today, I pointed out that what really got Bill Clinton back on track when he was in uh, almost in Joe Biden territory in terms of being underwater was the attack on that federal building, the bombing of that federal building in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, the, the Democrats could could stir something like that up. Um, it, it probably may be the only thing that could help Joe Biden. I'm not that conspiracy minded. I, I don't believe that was the motive. Um, I'm not really sure what the motive was. I'm not going to I'm not going to say it was anything like that. But right. But I, I do think that, you know, I do hope that conservatives uh, having after the initial burst of anger will sit back and, and wait and see see what's going on and, and that this will not, in, you know, induce uh, the kind of reaction the Democrats would like to see. I noticed that as soon as no sooner had this thing happened than in The Washington Post, three different articles appeared talking about how, you know, we're now on the brink of violence because of the Republican overreaction or hysteria, in the words of the awful Dana Milbank. So that, that's kind of out there, too, swirling around. So, yes, it's out there. It's swirling around. By the way, Garland is saying that um, he's going to ask the court to unseal the warrant and the um, and, and apparently, I guess, also the warrant application and um, or maybe it's just the warrant itself. There, there, there's two things here that could be pertinent, and it may be that neither is pertinent. There's the warrant, there's actual warrant application that was made to the court, which explains the need for the warrant, which is a different document. Um, and then there's the question, Paul, of whether either one of those is actually relevant to what the Department of Justice really want, or the FBI, I should say, really wanted to get to in this, because as Andy was saying on Monday, I think it was, this could have just been a predicate for you know, other crimes, you know, investigations and other crimes. And so the search warrant, while we all want the search warrant to come out so we can take a look and see what's going on, uh, the search warrant itself may not tell us a hell of a lot. And even the warrant application might not be the, uh, might not be, not, might not provide a full explanation of this as to what is actually going on here. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're suggesting yeah, that the FBI might not be completely on the, on the up and up. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean that, that's absolutely true. I think I think my my uh, partner on ringside at the uh, ringside at the uh, reckoning, Bill Otis, who has you know thirty years of law of experience in this, said that in criminal law said that you know it's probably they they probably got their bases covered in terms of probable cause for this search, which is which turns out to be a low standard. It sounds kind of high to you know to, to people who aren't familiar with this stuff, but it really it's really not much of a standard. And uh, I think all I would have to say was, you know, he took these do- he took these boxes of documents. We negotiated in good faith. We got some of them back. We have reason to believe, per the head of the archives, that we didn't get them all back. And that and that would be the that would be the predicate. Um, but whether whether it would be a justification for this precedent um, bursting action, and whether it would be the real reason, uh, are, are as you say, very different questions. Yeah, and and look, I mean. No president, no, no one's above the law, including a president, right? And and I, I think that that sounds great, you know, in principle. It is a good principle. Should be It should be applied equally. Um, this is not a usual situation. This is not something we've really run across. We've had disputes with presidents taking documents before with the National Archives and have, and have had that had to be no- negotiated out. But, I mean, those were really much lower temperature type of issues. Um, and generally speaking, negotiated at a much lower temperature than you might expect with Donald Trump. But I mean, it, to me, this recalls the whole issue with Hillary Clinton, this, you know, the, the email server, the FBI and the Department of Justice's real reluctance to, to do much with that. They end up kind of getting forced into doing an investigation of it. They didn't actually issue, you know, search warrants. They... Hillary Clinton eventually reluctantly turned over the server, but only after uh, wiping with a cloth, right? Right. (laughs) Wiping with a cloth, uh, half of the emails that had been stored on there. And um, 
And that didn't have any consequences. There, there were no consequences to Hillary Clinton, or at least the you know, FBI and the Department of Justice uh, declined to impose any consequences on that. So well, there, were, there were consequences because, you know, Comey gave that long thing that was criticized from both sides of the spectrum. Yeah. Laying out the case and then he had to then he came back and reopened the thing because of because of Wiener and some some strange way. Um, it had consequences. I, I think it was one of the few people that uh, on the conservative side that defended Comey at, at that at that point in time because he 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 found I think he found the middle way between putting too heavy a hand on the political process, which is what the Justice Department appears to be doing now, and letting. Uh, Clinton off, you know, scot free with no explanation to the public. Normally, the Justice Department will, will never, uh, if it doesn't, and it doesn't indict someone, they'll never lay out the case against them. Right. Which is a good principle. But I th and many people on our side, Andy McCarthy among them, and Bill Otis among them, were you know really were offended because these are Justice Department veterans at, at this violation of the Justice Department principle. But the alternative was just to let her off scot free. So I, I thought that he, he sort of stumbled into a do a good middle way there but uh forget that now i mean i don't think there's any middle way in play uh when it comes to the justice department and and donald trump and the motive may just be raw hatred of donald trump <laughs> you know we, we may be overthinking this you know right what were they trying to manipulate were they trying to get trump back into action to help uh, the democrats because they think you know that'll energize democrats more than republicans which is probably wrong uh you know all sorts of theories it may just be that they really hate this guy he pissed them off again during the negotiations and they went in. Yeah, I mean, I got to I got to think that there's not much chance that they're going to be able to prosecute the uh, document issues because of the the precedent set with Hillary Clinton. I mean, even Sandy Berger got let off with yeah. a, a slap on the wrist. Um uh, for for actually stealing documents out of the National Archive, not just not just not turning them over. Um, it, they didn't go after anybody except Berger, and only because he actually stole the documents back out of the National Archives. Yeah, but so, there's a little bit of a twist here, though, Ed, because I, it, the Republicans were so angry at the outcome with Hillary, and right, rightfully so. I believe they they switched this offense over from a misdemeanor to a felony. They did. They, they raised <laughs> under the Trump. State. You know, you know, so so maybe, you know, maybe they can get around. They they, they can use that to get around the, the Hillary precedent. It's uh, it's quite a tangled web. Yeah, this is part of the issue that, that you run into when things get politicized. And, you know, this is I, I think, Paul, if the Russia collusion thing had never happened. Right. Let's just imagine a world in which the Russia collusion thing had never happened. I think people. Even on even among Republicans would have had would have given the FBI a little bit more benefit of the doubt in in last night's uh, or not last night's Monday's uh, raid at Mar-a-Lago, you know. And Matt Taby, who is not a guy on the right, he's definitely a guy on the left. He's also a Substack writer. Um, you know, wrote about that and said, you know, you hear all these people issuing these justifications. Well, the Department of Justice wouldn't have, wouldn't, they wouldn't have gotten a warrant from a federal judge if they didn't have the goods on them. It's like, were you asleep when the, when the FBI and the DOJ were making these exact same arguments about the about the FISA warrants and everything else that, during the, um, you know, with the Steele dossier and everything else? Um, I think a lot of what the the high the the rancor, let's use that word, the rancor that has erupted over the last three days has to do with the fact that just simply put, nobody believes that the Department of Justice or the FBI is apolitical anymore. A hundred percent agree with that, Ed. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sad, but true. And uh, it's only going to get worse now that this has happened, unless, you know, Merrick Garland has a really good explanation. And even then, as you say, we don't really have to, we don't really have to believe it and probably shouldn't. Well, I don't think he's offering a, a, an explanation of a case right now. I think what he's offering is an explanation of the raid. And I'm just right. watching Jack, Jackie Heinrich from Fox News is live tweeting this stuff out. So it's really easy to follow. And what he's saying is that he's definitely going to um, unseal the search warrant and um, and also unseal the inventory of what was taken. And um, they're inviting the Trump side to either you know, agree to it or to challenge it in court, uh, which tells you that maybe they think that unsealing the warrant might help the DOJ's case a little bit more than it's going to help Trump's case. 
which has been a question too. Um, I want to ask you one more thing about this. Oh, and by the way, Garland says that he personally approved the raid, or the, not the raid, but the search warrant. He personally approved the search warrant and the search. Um, I want to ask you about the search warrant too, because there were there were reports that the FBI refused to leave a copy of the search warrant um, with the Secret Service agents and Trump's attorney. And I think Eric Trump was there as well. How unusual is it for the Department of Justice, the FBI, any law enforcement agency to execute a search warrant and refuse to allow the target to have a copy of it? I thought that that was fairly routine that they, you know, somebody had to sign it and then they were provided a copy of it at the time of the search. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I don't have experience in, in this field. I didn't practice on the criminal law side, but but your understanding comports with mine. And uh, maybe Garland can explain why that didn't happen or, or correct our understanding of what normally happens. But it doesn't sound like he's going to do that. Uh, but it's interesting that he that he's going to talk about what what documents they 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 obtained or the documents they took that that could be, you know, depending on the documents, it could be damaging to Trump. Could be. Could very well be. And again, it's a good reason to keep your powder dry until you know all the facts, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, I want, to, I want to switch gears because right now we've been talking mostly about what Bill Otis wrote about <laughs> at, yeah. at ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. I want to get to at least something that Paul Miringoff wrote at ringside at the reckoning.substack.com. And that's your piece about Ron DeSantis and, um, and, and where you fell in, or you know where you see Ron DeSantis at at the moment after this week's uh, well after the last last week or so's developments. Well, a lot of people are saying that he's been pushed back to you know pushed out of relevance and and that it, the the world the Republican world is going to rally back around Trump, but uh, quietly not not that quietly but fairly quietly uh, Ron DeSantis is doing a great job in Florida of, of fighting wokeism, and the one the piece that I wrote about today had to do with um, this whole matter of, of college accreditation. Yeah, left -wing this college, is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, Le left-wing accreditation types um, will, will basically stand in the way of any attempts to break the stranglehold the left, left has on, on universities. In the case of Florida, all, all, that was, all that DeSantis wanted to do initially was put a guy on and make a guy president of Florida State who had, you know, who was, a, who was a, you know, a leading political figure in the state on the Republican side, but he had a background in education. Um, it's fairly common for, you know, for politicians, uh, Mitch Daniels being the best example in Indiana to become head of a college, and he's done extremely well. Mitch Daniels has, uh, even even the in Florida, some of the presidents have had political backgrounds, and yet the accreditation board. Um, Kind of warned uh, the the state the you know that if if, if this guy his name is Cochran became president it might jeopardize their accreditation without accreditation you know you know your, your diploma is basically worthless the college doesn't get um, funding and so you know led by DeSantis the state fought back with a with a, a law that that basically said the accredit the creditor rotates so that one entrenched entrenched left wing creditor can't completely control the college system and make it a safe haven for wokeism. The Biden administration fought that um, with, with warnings and, and guidance documents. Uh, and, and the Stannis has stuck to his guns. And I think this shows, and the article was written by Stanley Kurtz. He's a friend of mine who's, who's great on this stuff. Yeah, he's Stanley, terrific. He's been telling me all along that the Stantis really knows where the bodies are buried on this stuff. He really knows how to fight wokeism. You know, he, he's in, engaged in all the right um, battles, unlike some conservative hero governors who I won't name at this point, uh, he really knows what he's doing. And so I, I just think he's, you know, he's establishing himself. He's proving his mettle, I think was a, the, the title of my article, as someone who can really, you know, get in the trenches and fight this stuff. And I'm not sure that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's heart is in the right place on wokeism. He gives great speeches. I'm not sure he has the attention to detail, knows where the bodies are buried, the way the way DeSantis is learning from his experience. So I, I think this fight, if people understand what he's doing, you know, elevates him as, as a very credible uh, possibility for the nomination. You know, Paul, I mean, it's it's interesting because there's he's also sort of fighting back against woke prosecutors, too. Yes. And, um, and, and I think that this really is sort of part and parcel 
of DeSantis's what's clearly going to be a 2024 bid, right? I don't think anybody thinks that DeSantis is going to sit out 2024, regardless of what Donald Trump does, because he's, you know, I mean, DeSantis is a young guy, but his term as governor is going to end in 2026. And it's tough to come back from a year or so off off the job and then jump in and do, uh, it's not impossible, but it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's easier when you've got momentum and he's got a ton of momentum right now. And this, um, this same type of issue came up, or at least the same fighting spirit, if you will, came up in uh, the issue of the 13th Judicial District State Attorney with Andrew Warren, who had pledged not to enforce any of the laws that the, Cal that, excuse me, that the Florida legislature had just passed in regards to abortion, in regards to uh, 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 underage access for sex change, um, you know, therapies and surgeries. And DeSantis said... Um, you, sorry, you can't do that. And I'm going to suspend you. And I mean, people, you know, called DeSantis an authoritarian. They, they said, this is, he's a danger to the Republic, but this is actually, <laughs> this is actually what you do to salvage the Republican, small r, Republican institutions that allow for the rule of law, which is to say that people who are elected into positions as state Process, state attorneys, district attorneys in other jurisdictions aren't supposed to ignore broad swaths of the law that just because they simply don't like it. And I actually think that DeSantis is scoring points here that other Republicans haven't, other Republican governors haven't done yet either. Yeah, he, he's bold, creative, and, and willing to willing to act. And, uh, you know, again, a lot of conservative hero governors are not because you face a lot of pressure against this stuff. And it's not just media backlash. I mean, there, you know, there, there are institutions, the university system, I mean, you know, taking on the education establishment. Um, Trump did Trump did some of that, you know, in, in his in his last two years. I, I want to give him some credit there. And maybe his first two years he couldn't because A, he was you know, under investigation, bogus investigation, and B, he couldn't find the right people to serve in his administration. Um, because he wasn't really connected. So Trump was making progress on, on those um, fronts. But I just feel like if, if there's a second Trump administration, it's going to be so much about payback and, and settling scores and not, not yeah. that kind of focus that, that, that DeSantis seems to have. Well, I'm going to I'm going to throw a different angle of that at you because I agree with you. I think that pro part of the problem for Trump is that he's going to be the, the backward looking candidate and DeSantis is going to be the forward looking candidate. Uh, Axios, maybe about a month ago, and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm assuming that you saw this, but if not, I can, I, I'm sure you're going to know exactly what this is anyway. Axios ran an article about what Trump is planning to do, you know, his, his manifesto. I think they actually did call it a manifesto, uh, for a second term. Now, I don't think Trump is organized enough to have a manifesto. I think he's got, you know, conceptual ideas and he, you know, he's working with people to flesh those out. But part of this was, uh, the Schedule F um, executive order that he issued maybe about three months before the end of his presidency, right, in October of 2020, where they were going to reclassify 50,000 positions in the federal government, in the federal bureaucracy, uh, to remove them from civil service protections and essentially make them presidential appointees, as opposed to the 4,000 or so presidential appointees that there are right now. And Axios was very... The, the Axios folks were very unhappy about this because it was either Axios or Politico that commented that these people have a profound effect on American life and and it would be a major issue for for them to have to answer to a president. And I'm thinking if 50,000 federal bureaucrats have a profound effect on on American life, they better damn well answer to, <laughs> to, to popularly elected yeah. officials because that's the whole point of <laughs> representative self-government. Um the, the the issue that I did have at the time when I'm writing about this was I didn't think Trump is the guy with a great idea on this, but I don't think he's the guy to execute it. And I think what you're writing here, what you're saying here, too, is that I think we're, we're kind of of the same opinion of this. He's not detail oriented enough to really make effective use of that policy. But Ron DeSantis probably is. I mean, this is a guy who's very detail oriented and he is uh, granular. Um, not just uh, not just conceptual, but granular. And I think that Schedule F thing is a really interesting 
um, way to look at the differences between the two. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I give, I give Trump credit for that. You can imagine, I live, um, you know, in the heart of the Beltway. Um, as readers who don't like what I say sometimes are quick to point out, <laughs> I, I can assure I can assure you that that, that nothing upset more people, uh, including some family members, not immediate family members, than the, than this proposal by Trump. You know, my first job, my first summer job in the government when Nixon was president, and he had some kind of an idea. I don't remember what it was about H, about what to do with HMOs, building I guess more use of HMOs, and the assignment that was given to me was to do research to find out why this was a bad idea. <laughs> this is what Nixon, this is what the administration wanted. <laughs> and I was supposed to research to find out it was a bad idea. And all of my experiences with the government, both working in it for, as a full-time employee and lawyer for, for five years, fighting against it at times as, as a lawyer on the other side, all of my experiences with the government are, you know, of a kin with that, with my very first assignment to, to debunk what President Nixon wanted to do. So I, I just think this is a, a great idea. I give Trump a lot of credit for it. I, I agree with you that DeSantis is probably the one who can who can see it through better. Um, I, you know, I, I hope I hope whoever we're able to elect, if we're able to elect someone in, in 2024, uh, follows through. Yeah, I mean, I said it at the time, I think, uh, you know, I, I know that the media is unhappy about this, but I actually think this is a brilliant idea and any Republican uh, who is looking to run for president should be behind this whole Schedule F thing because this is exactly how you do get control of federal policy, um, have elected officials be in, in control of federal policy rather than, and I hate the term deep state because deep state really signifies something else to me, but the but a, a self-perpetuating bureaucracy, I think is a better way to look at this. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've been inside the beast. Um, I fought the beast and, and, and it's, exactly the way the way you say and there's resistance um i know i know uh, you know a good friend of mine was the assistant attorney general for civil rights um he he and and his deputy were constantly fighting um you know with, with the entrenched bureaucrats who didn't want to do he had to bring some of his case bring some of the cases like i think the case they brought against yale which is the, the same kind of case that's being brought against harvard for discrimination admissions they had to go find personnel from other parts of the department you know, to, to, to do the work, <laughs> you know, I mean, when, when you, when, when things have descended to that level, you know, you've got to take drastic action. And the fact that the major, the mainstream mediums, you know, hair was on fire is, is just another sign that, that, that Trump is on the right track with this. I agree. I agree. Um, and look, I mean, I think that, um, we're going to have to wait to see what the what the entire fallout is of this raid on Mar-a-Lago and the search warrant, what it was that they found, what it was that the Department of Justice actually was trying to do with this. I still think that we're probably at least um, a week or two away of getting any significant leaks. <laughs> and Because nobody's going to talk about this on the record, but there's going to be leaks all over the place, both from both sides, right? And we're already hearing leaks from the uh, going into the media that people in the Trump side are telling other Republicans, you know, keep your powder dry because there may be some stuff that comes out that is going to not be pleasant. Um, I just suspect that this whole thing is going to be embarrassing for all the way around. It's just not going to, I don't think it's actually going to move the needle, except it might motivate Republicans and independents to turn out a little bit stronger in, the, in this cycle. Just the, just the rancor of this alone. And in that sense, I think it's going to be a huge backfire on Garland and the D and the DOJ. Yeah, I hope so. And, and wouldn't be surprised. All right. Well, Paul Marengoff is writing at ringside at the reckoning dot substack dot com ringside at the reckoning dot substack dot com. And uh, Paul, I, I know I ask you this. You're not on Twitter, right? No, I'm not. Because uh, you're smarter than for, me. For better or for worse. <laughs> Well, I'm trying to keep track of all the people who are smarter than me because they're not on Twitter. And uh, and I know that uh, you are definitely one of them. So it's it's great that you stop by here and uh, and talk to and talk to a guy who's who's too dumb to get off of Twitter. I, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know you're, you're, too you're too popular to get off of Twitter. Twitter would be Twitter would be um, worse, worse off. And it doesn't and Twitter doesn't want to go down any further downhill any further. Well, there you go. Well, me and Elon Musk, I guess it's just me and Elon Musk that are holding the whole thing up. All right, Paul, thanks so much for being with us. Great talking to you again. Can't wait until we do it again. Thank you, Ed. 
All right, folks, stay tuned for just one more message from The Ed Morrissey Show coming up. Welcome back to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Today, we get a chance to talk to my good friend who you see right now, Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com. And he's on Twitter at Hollywood and Toto and uh, does lots of great stuff. He's got his own podcast as well and uh, probably better than this one. And uh, <laughs> Christian, great to have you back. Good to be back. Actually, my podcast is taking a knee for the summer, but I will be back. And uh, yes, it will be so superior to all podcasts that have ever been created. So there you go. That's that's how you that's do that. Personal guarantee. That's how you do this sort of thing. You, know, that, that, you go bold or go home. That's what I say. Uh, well, speaking of going bold and going home, I want to talk about Batgirl. Uh, but but first, before we go there, um, you had a post about Hollywood discovering that maybe going woke is 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 not so not such a great business plan. Um, I, I think that we've seen this, right? I mean, this is not new necessarily, but maybe in a recessionary time, the entertainment industry is going to have to start making some tougher choices. Yeah, you know, it's the one question I get asked a lot that I don't have a real firm answer to. You know, if woke doesn't do well, uh, if people are boycotting different products and content, why isn't Hollywood responding? And I, I would say, well, you know, I don't, I don't get to see behind the scenes. I don't see the numbers being crunched. I, I think they're still doing okay, for lack of a better phrase. And that's why there's not much change happening. But now we are seeing some change happening. We'll get into the back girl in a, in a moment, I'm sure. But, you know, I... I look at what's happening in the culture look at happening in the economy we're entering recession by a technical classification even if the word is not allowed to be said and things are rough inflation is soaring gas prices are not good and i think given all that even hollywood which seemed kind of bulletproof economically speaking is starting to get the sense that hey we we better be smarter about what we do right i mean i mean in your in your post and the post is up at hollywoodandtoto.com i mean you talk about some of the misfires right and a couple of these i kind of agree with a couple of them I, I i don't necessarily think that the issue necessarily was the film itself maybe some of the marketing and commentary around the film you know for instance you know the the um the charlie's angels that was helmed by elizabeth banks right <laughs> i watched that and to me it was a charlie's angels film this is your typical charlie's angels film and i actually kind of I actually kind of enjoyed it for what it was, which is, you know, it's always heavy on girl power. I think it was the commentary that surrounded it that that made it, um, that that created that sort of storm. On the other hand, the all-female ghost, I'd say the same thing about the all-female Ghostbusters, except <laughs> that that wasn't a very good Ghostbusters film. Whereas, you know, the Elizabeth Banks version of Charlie's Angels was pretty much the same version of Charlie's Angels that there always is. It's always cheesy. It's always girl power. Uh, Ghostbusters just wasn't funny. It was just yeah. kind of dull and boring and it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't good either. Um, but there are certainly other, other, uh, related things here that keep failing. And I think that you and I have talked about this before that, you know, money isn't everything necessarily in, in the entertainment business. It is important, but it's not everything. And a lot of people are willing to fund the woke projects as, a just a sort of a political statement in and of themselves and aren't as concerned about losses but again that's the type of thing that's the type of decision that you can make when you can make money easy someplace else but as as things get tough and as this is one of the things that you talk about in this post those decisions become a lot more difficult to make yeah it's fascinating to watch in real time for sure i mean i think netflix is the perfect example because a massive company the king of the hill when it comes to streaming and there was, you know, not a, not every other show was woke, but there was certainly a lot of that kind of content. In my book, Virtue Bombs, I spoke to a uh, producer who said when he went into one of their Netflix headquarters, there was a statue or some sort of art display. It said, stay woke. So they were all in. But, you know, that's all well and good. But when things are failing, when subscriber counts aren't as robust as they once were, when the stock price is, 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 is hemorrhaging a bit, then you really want to go bottom line, bottom line, bottom line. And if a Dave Chappelle special draws up some outrage but gets lots of eyeballs, you better stick to that because that's a bottom line issue. And I think that's one of the reasons why Netflix was so good to Dave Chappelle in recent months when they could have easily cut him out. I, I expected that, actually. Well, it's the same. I mean, and Dave Chappelle is a, is a you know massive comedy talent, right? I wouldn't say the same thing about Chelsea Handler. I wouldn't say the same thing about Michelle Wolf. 
Um, most people probably don't even know who Michelle Wolf is. <laughs> I mean, <You're> lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen I've seen her shtick before. What was the thing where she had that whole abortion celebration thing yeah, with it? Terrible. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was bad. And um, and and that those are some of the people who are getting the boot over at Netflix. Um, you know, a I guess a show with the title "Dear White People." <laughs> It's probably just a little too didactic for the type of audience that you're going to need to draw in order to justify uh, taking up space at Netflix. And I mean, Netflix really, honestly, you could you can do eclectic on Netflix. You can do eclectic on Amazon, but only as a distributor, right? I mean, they're in these shows. The difference is that these shows are relying on Netflix's investment in, in the as a production rather than just as a distribution. Yeah, and I also think that if they balanced out the coverage, if they had some right-leaning shows, maybe some liberty-loving programming, I, I think that would tell conservatives that, uh, you know, maybe I don't like the woke stuff, but there's things here for me too. I think conservatives are very magnanimous that way. We've we've cheered South Park for years, even when South Park attacks us, right? Because they attack everyone. So I think if you had a platform like Netflix that was very even keeled and hey we've got this this movie named moxie and it's super woke and then we've got this other show it's a stand-up special featuring you know tyler fisher who's sort of a uh, an apolitical but interesting fellow maybe that's you know maybe that draws a crowd but uh you know you can't say we can't have dave Chappelle on here when he's arguably the best living comedian i mean that's a problem and uh, but they stuck by him they realized that was the right move and i also think it was the right move economically speaking and i also think when there's these outrage circles or swarms, whatever you want to call them, how big are they? I mean, and how consequential yeah. are they? And how much is, is truly being lost by them? I think it's often very small. I, you know, I think that's one of the things that corporations start to understand is that the, the, the Twitter universe is, is really very small and it really isn't a microcosm of the, of the market as a whole. Um, it may be a microcosm, a good microcosm of social media markets, but Twitter is something that where activists tend to really drown out everybody else, where the political debate is usually esoteric, you know, and that includes the stuff that we do, right? I mean, I would say that, you know, a lot of people are interested in what we write about at Hot Air. A lot of people are interested in what you write about at Hollywood and Toto. I wouldn't say that, that we represent the vast majority of Americans. I'd like to think that, but I'm not going, <laughs> certainly not going to make that claim. And, and I think that if you're calculating a, you know, a, a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a, um, investment maybe? well, investment, I'm, I'm just thinking if you're talking about corporate policy, you know, for a, for a global corporation and you're calculating it based on what you're reading on Twitter, mm -hmm. you're going to, you're going to miss the mark and you're going to miss it wide. And I think that that's really what, uh, these firms are starting to find out. Even Disney, I think is starting to figure this out after their debacle in Florida. Yeah, you know, the Disney thing is interesting because I, I, I get the sense they're still all in that they, I don't think they've learned their economic lesson. And I just think it's such a massive company. They've got so many slam dunks out there. You know, the MCU just rushes to mind. Even the, even the mediocre to poor MCU movies just crush the box office. So yep. I, I think they have some insulation there. I, my, my separate argument for a separate day is I just think that they're hurting their family-friendly brand, which has taken decades to nurture and hone and establish. I, I'm shocked by that. But yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that they're changing their ways yet, but I think other companies are, including HBO Max slash Warner Brothers Discovery, which just, just flows off the tongue, by the way, the new the new company moniker. So what do you think about the about the success of Top Gun Maverick and maybe even Bullet Train, which I think just came out, right? Uh, which, I mean, I haven't seen Bullet Train, so I can't really comment directly on it, but it seems to be sort of a uh, a fun, more adult-oriented summer romp, you know, action mm -hmm. film with, with a lot of humor in it and that sort of thing. I have no idea how woke it is, how unwoke it is. Brad Pitt's in it. He's talking about doing another one because he had so much fun yeah. doing this one. Uh, so, I mean, I'm kind of interested in seeing it. But, you know, Top Gun Maverick I have seen. And it is, um, it is completely... Uh, set apart from all of these politics, right? I mean, you can make an argument, I guess, that it's patriotic, but honestly, it's not really... The th I, I'd say that, yeah, that was that was the marketing plan for the first Top Gun film. I'm not so sure that there, there, there was a 
a purposeful orientation to that in this. It's just that they didn't try to entirely negate that type of thing. I mean, the patriotism just kind of bubbles up from the fact that you're dealing with the military and, you know, dealing with a, um, with a fictional conflict that, you know, America is right about. (laughs) So I guess it's there, but it's, it it wasn't really overplayed, you know, but this wasn't a recruiting film in in the kind of the way the first Top Gun was. So what do you make of the fact that these are really getting huge, you know, at least Top Gun is getting a huge return at the box office this summer? It's a little tricky because I think there are a lot of different factors in play for sure. Uh, I think the fact that Top Gun is aggressively apolitical is almost political at this point, and yeah. just given the culture. Uh, but I, I mean, I think that Top Gun just came along at the perfect time. I think it's a very well-constructed movie. It's crowd-pleasing. It's formulaic. It's sentimental. It, it does it all well. Uh, but yeah, there is that sort of relief that you can go to the theater and go, and then have to go into the culture wars. And I, I felt the same way about Spider-Man No Way Home. Which was, I, which was equally apolitical. And there was nothing woke about it. There was there were no lectures. It was very it was filled with fan service in the best way possible. And those are two of the biggest films of the last three years. I know the pandemic is you know influencing those numbers. So I, I, it is interesting, you know. But but will Hollywood truly learn the lessons of Top Gun, or will they just say, well, we got to do new Dirty Dancing now because it was from the '80s and that was successful and this is successful? I, I don't have enough faith in Hollywood to kind of really kind of. <laughs> knuckle down and say, okay, why was this successful? What did this do differently that mattered so much? I, I, I don't know if they have it in them. Can I, can I just squeeze in a, a plea to Hollywood? Please do not remake Iron Eagle. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> Please do not remake Iron Eagle. Uh, <laughs> that, that would be that would be a bad move. I, I'm, you know, I don't know how you feel about the whole Iron Eagle franchise, but uh, I, I, yeah, that's... I'm a, I'm a child of the 80s, and I never saw one of those movies. But I'm, I'm aware that they may be less than spectacular. I'll well, then, you, you probably, you're probably wiser than I am. I, I saw at least two of them. and uh, Because I was a Lou Gossett fan, right? I'm thinking, oh, Lou Gossett. Lou Gossett. Yeah, Lou Gossett was great. He was, I mean, he was good in the films. I mean, you know, he's a good actor, regardless what the material he's working with. But, yeah, we, we don't need Iron Eagle. Let's not do that. Um <laughs> I, speaking of films that should never see the light of day, however, <laughs> we got to talk about Batgirl, and, and in a way, we got to talk about The Flash too, right? These are uh, two DC uh, studio films. One's going to have a big, huge, splashy rollout. Uh, one is never going to see the light of day, and the one that's going to get the big, splashy rollout is the one whose star is, uh, you know, under investigation for. <laughs> All sorts of different things, right? Is like an ongoing embarrassment to the studio. But his film's going to get greenlit for distribution, whereas Batgirl is going to uh, become an NFT. <laughs> I, I think at this point, Ezra Miller could kidnap a bus full of nuns and school children, and he would be disappear without a trace, and that movie would go on as scheduled. That's where we are right now. It's pretty crazy. Um, it's very strange. I, listen, the fact that they're going to basically erase a movie that appears to be 80 to 90% done is seems unprecedented, especially given it's a superhero film. We've seen a lot of bad superhero films make a lot of money. So yeah. there's something else in play here. It could literally be an account, an accounting snafu where they could write it off and they acknowledge it's a, it's a lousy film. Certainly possible, but this is really odd. And you know, when, when the studios start explaining it, you really have to kind of take all that with a grain of salt because it's something doesn't smell right here. Something smells very odd, right? I mean, this is um I get the tax write down argument, but that's a ninety million dollar investment that they're gonna be writing down. I mean, um I, maybe Warner Brothers really needs the money, but um <laughs> but I, I gotta imagine that well, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but you could still take a tax write down on a loss if you if you took, put it in the theaters, do twenty million dollars, you can write down the seventy million dollars, but at least you're not, you're not out ninety. So yeah, you know, and I think the one thing that people don't talk about enough is there's all this. Well, this is the first Latina female hero. I, I mean, there's always that conversation, but what about the entire cast and crew? who spent weeks and weeks and weeks giving their all. You know, Michael Keaton is there, J.K. Simmons, a great actor. We haven't heard a peep from them, have we? And it's so interesting that we haven't. 
you know, Michael Keaton spouting off on this and that on Twitter, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to guess he's not saying anything about this. It's just strange. And it really is. Listen, the movie could be terrible, but there are millions of terrible movies and no one loses sleep over having a bad movie out there. And there's always enough people who like a movie and you know, it's kind of a slap in the face to everyone who worked in this movie saying, yeah. hey, we're good, we're good. We're going we're gonna to throw it in a hole. That's fascinating, too. I, if I'm Michael Keaton, I wouldn't work with this company again, would you? No, no. I mean, Michael Keaton's got a long history with, you know, DC being the original. Well, the, I, not the original Batman. Adam West is the original Batman. Let's yeah, let's right. be honest. But he was a good Batman, right? And, yeah, and you know, and... um. Yeah, we don't want to we don't want to denigrate uh, Michael Keaton's Batman because it turned out to be much better than I think a lot of us anticipated when we heard about his casting in that. But um, yeah, it's just strange, and you know the whole issue of uh, of the you know uh, the fact that this is I, I believe a um, Latina who is playing the lead in this, and that's and, and burying that um, that's been part of the of the public debate on this, um, as well as the whole Ezra Miller thing has been public debate uh because it is really a very strange choice by david zaslav here i mean it, obviously the the flash movie seems to be an, an, a critical linchpin to the entire dc universe that if they pull it everything comes falling down like a house of cards i don't know i i wish we could apply just give truth serum to everyone to get the truth because i don't think we're really near it yet no but it is comical but listen ezra miller is a deeply troubled soul and i I'm at the point where I feel for him, although he's hurting people at the same time. So I, I can't just dismiss what he's doing. But how do you stand by this actor? I mean, Roseanne Barr, you know, fired off one racially charged, ugly tweet and her show was gone. She's gone. And look what he's up to Miller. And, and he, you know, and, and the, the show must go on. It's, it's, uh, it's all as clear as mud. I, yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, um, it's very strange. It's a very strange uh, set of circumstances. And I mean, to turn a potential franchise into basically the um, equivalent of that Wu-Tang Clan album that, uh, you know, Martin Shkreli hid in his safe for uh, it was a couple of years until he had to pay up, pay up a, whole, you know, a huge fortune um, in that price fixing scandal. Um, that to me is just beyond bizarre and yes i mean i think if you're talking about the the number of people who've worked on this film i mean it's not as though you had films that had bad test screenings because that was the excuse well, i don't want to say excuse, maybe it's maybe it is the reason but films have had bad test screenings before you go back you reshoot you 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 mm -hmm. cut you, you recut you and you try to salvage what you can out of it i mean this is hollywood they do this all the time that's the reason why you yeah. have test screenings right and it's also if it's on hbo max the, the sort of the threshold is lower people even if they hear it's things they go oh, i'll give it a try so there's that we've had lots of very bad superhero movies that have actually done pretty well financially that's not a real excuse uh they could sort of do some reshoots, make it better. That's a possibility. Right. Uh, and, and again, you know, we, we've had franchises where there's been clunkers and this, the franchise just powers on. They made a bad Fantastic Four movie. They're going to reboot that. They made two other Fantastic Four movies. They didn't really stick stick in a way. Yeah. Uh, I thought Captain Marvel was mediocre. It made gobs of money. I thought the Venom films are almost unwatchable. <laughs> I agree. Killing at the box office. I agree. I saw, I saw the first one. I was like, I... <laughs> So the first one is like, uh, it's one of those ones that you have to, I didn't see it in the theater, right? So it would come on TV and I'd start watching. It was going, what the hell is this? I mean, I'm not a big comic book fan, you know, anyway, but this just seemed to be not really well done. Interesting, interesting con uh, concept, but not really well done. Hey, they rebooted Suicide Squad and made <laughs> The Suicide Squad, both of which were completely unwatchable. <laughs> And I've seen both of them, and they're both completely unwatchable with completely different casts, right? Yeah. And um, they're probably. Way, I saw Venom 2 on a plane, and I was literally eyeballing the parachute. I just, like, I can't. <laughs> this is so bad. I can't believe it. Venom 2 makes Venom 1 look like Citizen Kane. <laughs> sort of like Ghost Rider Spirit of Darkness, right? <laughs> I saw the first Ghost Rider, and thought, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of stupid, but at least it's got style, and I like Sam Elliott and Nicolas Cage's. 
well, Nicolas Cage, but you know, and Rosario Dawson, Dawson is Rosario Dawson. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I can dig this, um, a little bit. And then I saw, <laughs> I saw Ghost Rider Two: Spirit of Darkness, and it's like, who greenlit this thing? I mean, honest to God, I mean, how did this thing get released? And it did. It got released. I mean, is Batgirl worse? And Ghost Rider 2, Spirit of Vengeance, because you'd really have to try to make a worse film than that one. You know, get, getting back to our sort of earlier conversation, though, given the fact that you had a Latina lead, the two directors, I, I, forget, I forgive me, I forget their name, they're fairly new on the scene. Mm -hmm. They also directed Bad Boys for Life, and I think the Miss Marvel TV show. So they yes. have some talent. They're people of color. These are the things that would normally rise up, and Warner Brothers Discovery would say, okay, our bad, we're going to fix this, it's coming back. I don't see that happening. I don't hear any whispers of that happening. I think the the, the the sort of the panic is already dying down now. So again, something is up here. I, I, and I, I wish the, the mainstream Hollywood press would be more curious, more skeptical. They just kind of re revive the, the talking points and that's their part of the job. And if the, if the studio puts out a, a statement, you got to share it, but there should be way more skepticism about what the reasoning and what's going on behind the scenes totally because what they're saying is almost laughable you know uh it wasn't ready we did we want to make this a theatrical experience this was an hbo max title we'll just throw it in the theater who cares we don't sweat those details we see superhero movies on the poster we go in yeah Ridiculous. They, i mean they kind of sell themselves they have a built-in audience yeah and so um a built-in audience with a very large range of suspension of disbelief. Let me just put it that way. Because people, again, it's fan service, right? Mm -hmm. And and I totally get that. Fan service is great. Um, not my cup of tea. But, you know, if they made another Star Trek movie, I'd be in the theater. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, you know, I, I went back to, I went back to see um, uh, Undiscovered Country after having sat through uh, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. <laughs> You're a loyal customer. <laughs> hey, I was a loyal customer, right? So, I mean, I've got no room to talk. I, I you know, uh, the late, great Nichelle Nichols just recently passed away. And, of course, uh, I loved her work. But the whole fan dance on the sand dune in Star Trek V was not her, her greatest moment. She had a lot of really good moments in the in the sixth film, actually, uh -huh. in, um, in, in that final film that she did for, the, for Star Trek. But, yeah, I mean... There's fan service and then there's sort of just being off the wall with it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, again, I, I'm I'm mystified by the whole Batgirl thing. All right. Yeah. Since we've got you, Christian, now, okay. you know, um, I guess uh, first off, I want to ask about Bullet Train because I think I want to go see that. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet. Um, and uh, what else should we be looking at in terms of what's coming into the theaters? Because I, I, I've been to the theater. I've been to the theater twice now this year and I'm, I'm back, baby. I want to go back. I found Bullet Train a bit frustrating because the beginning is very good. It's almost like a like a Bugs Bunny cartoon brought to life. It's very broad, very over the top. But there's grisly stuff too. It's a it's about a bunch of, bunch of hitmen congregating on a on a on a speeding train. Brad Pitt's one of them, hmm. and they all have these different sort of competing motivations. And there are some laughs. And Brad Pitt is a very funny fellow. I I, I don't think we think of them you know that first. He's super good looking. He's an Oscar winner now. He's a very good actor. But he's funny. He was great in Lost City as well. And then the movie just, punter, unintended or not, goes off the rails. The last 20, 30 minutes are horrible. And it just oh. has no sense of anything. So if you go in there with a light expectation, I think you may enjoy it. But just know it's, it is adult. It is sort of wacky. Uh, it is very silly. And if you're in the mood for that, then maybe give it a try. But it's, I feel like it, if it had stuck the landing, I think it would have been a much better movie. So it's more of an adult version of the villain. Do you remember the villain with Kirk Douglas and Arnold Schwarzenegger? I know of it. I never saw it, I don't think. My father likes to bring this one up every time we talk about movies. <laughs> it's one of his favorites. It is It is a Bugs... It's a Roadrunner cartoon come to life mm -hmm. where Kirk Douglas is the villain and Arnold Schwarzenegger is the hero. And mm -hmm. I, mean, they, they, I mean, they have like the the hole on the rock with the train thing that comes through it, the, the whole thing. I mean, they uh, just, they they completely sell out for this, for this bit and it works. It's actually a lot of fun, but, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, as I recall, and I haven't seen it in years, as I recall, it was a little tedious to have that stretched out over a 90 minute. Um, yeah. It's yeah. the kind of thing when, once you stretch it a bit, it definitely gets a little wobbly. You gotta, you gotta be, gotta bring it in under 90. And I, I, I've seen a couple of films recently where I just thought, Oh, a Prey I saw, which was actually a, a decent Predator spinoff. It's on Hulu right now. Hmm. It's not great, but it's entertaining, and it's better than I thought. And it's 
roughly 90 minutes. I was so happy I, that you should add three stars just for that because <laughs> movies today are just so long and so bloated and they just don't know when to quit. This movie just kind of knew what it needed to do, got her done and got out. And that's fine. That's that's the way you should, you know, more films should kind of think like that. Elvis was like that too. I mean, I didn't like the first third of it and then it went on too long, but it had this fantastic performance yeah, uh, yeah. by Austin Butler as Elvis. I mean, that just, that's the whole reason to go see that is to yep, go see Austin Butler's performance as Elvis. It's just phenomenal. To capture that charisma, that stage presence, that excitement, a lot of actors could not do that. And he, he nailed yep. it. He nailed it perfectly. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's been done before. I think um, uh, Kurt Russell did a really good job in the mm -hmm. um, you know, TV movie about Elvis. I think it was 1979 or 1981 in that I range. Yes, around there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was really good, too. I think you could still find that. Uh, if you're looking for it but i mean to do that the way that austin butler did it it just it's phenomenal so yeah. yeah all right what else are we missing before we let you go what 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 should we be looking for you know it's a very odd time of year uh the blockbusters are done there's nothing really big coming in the next few weeks i don't think we're going to transition to the oscar bait movies for a while so you're going to see a lot of smaller films kind of elbow their way in here there's a film, there's a film called emily the criminal uh with audrey plaza comes out i believe yeah. this friday I have a screening link. I haven't watched it yet. I'll watch it soon. It, it sounds a little bit like speaking of the modern times about the economy, about class, you know, envy perhaps. So we'll have to see if it's didactic or just entertaining. Um, I've screened Clerks 3. It comes out next month. I can't say a word about it, but I'm itching to say plenty about it. Okay. Uh, that, that's going to be a kind of a limited release, though. I think it's going to be like a Fathom Events maybe oh. two or three nights. That's, of course, the third film in the, in the Clerks trilogy. Right. It, it is surreal. I was watching the Clerks trailer, the first film, last night, and the black and white, the youthful cast, that raw energy, it, it was it was a sensation. It's a, there's a reason why Kevin Smith kind of popped on the map, and uh, I'm very curious to see what your reaction to this one will be. Yeah, I think the one with um, uh, Aubrey Plaza, who, by the way, I really enjoyed in Best Sellers. I don't know if you ever had a chance to watch that. You told um, me about that. I have not caught up with that yet. But yeah, I mean, it's, it didn't make a lot of waves, but I thought it was a really enjoyable film. Um, and I like Aubrey Plaza. I think I like her more now after having seen her in that. I saw her, I, I think the stuff I've always seen her in is like stuff where she's playing a, a relatively minor role or in um, one of my guilty pleasures, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, which <laughs> I gotta tell you, I really like that film. It's a guilty pleasure. There is nothing intellectually redeeming about that movie, but it is so much fun. It is so much fun. Um, but she was really good in uh, bestsellers. And so I think this one, um, Emily, Emily the Criminal, I think is, is what it's called, right? Yeah. Um, it's, about the, it's about the gig economy. So my guess is that it's some sort of social satire about the gig economy and how you know, gig workers get exploited. I'm guessing, yeah. I'm guessing. It sounds that way too. Also, what one movie that's just in theaters now is called Easter Sunday. It's mediocre. It's a very sweet film. It's Joe Coy, a very funny stand-up comedian, who for years and years has talked about his Filipino mom and all sort of her, you know, her oppressive ways, and you know, with love and affection, of course. So he kind of built a movie about going home for Easter Sunday, being with his mom. The mom is fighting with her sister, and all sort of the the kind of cultural moments that you don't see a lot. From Filipino culture in an American film, it's very lightweight. Joe Coy is very enjoyable in it, but I I wish it were better because you don't see many movies like this. But uh, it's out there. It's inoffensive. It's PG thirteen. If you're looking for something very light and breezy, you'll get a couple chuckles out of it. But uh, it, it should have been a little sharper. All right, so that's good to know. And of course, if you want to know more about what's going on in Hollywood or on the screen or on your tube, you go to HollywoodandToto.com or you can find uh, Christian Toto. Uh, at Hollywood and Toto on Twitter and uh, lots of great stuff coming in as his podcast will return um, and it will be far superior to this one. He, he assures us, <laughs> which is by the way, not a, not a high bar to clear my friend, but you know, 78.6% better. 78.6%. I've done the math. You can't, you can't fight with numbers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can't dispute numbers, man. That's, that's <laughs> absolutely true. All right. Christian Toto. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Stay tuned for just a little bit more from The Ed Morrissey Show. Come right up. Thank you for watching and listening to The Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Be sure to subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube to get alerted as soon as new episodes get published. 
You can support The Ed Morrissey Show and Hot Air's VIP reporting by becoming a VIP member, too. Visit hotairvip.com and use the promo code SAVEAMERICA, all one word, for 40% off your membership. Choose VIP Gold and gain membership to access to all of the town hall sites. Thanks again for watching and listening.